Welcome back to another episode of the Geekspin Podcast. And on this episode, which is very special, we are speaking with Mark Sardorius, who also performs as Mark with a C. We'll be talking about the new album, Fantaphobia. We're going to talk about vinyl, we're going to talk about music, and we're going to talk about David Bowie. So sit back and strap in, because the show is a go. Welcome back to another episode of the Geekspin Podcast. And today I'm very excited to have Mark Sardorius, who also performs as Mark with a C. Mark, welcome. <laughs> Oh, thank you for having me, Corey. It's wonderful to be here. And I haven't done this in a long time, so be gentle on me, please. I will. I always am. So first off, um, please tell us about yourself. Sure. Uh, my name is Mark Sardorius, but when you hear the name Mark with a C, that means I've shown up with something that I hope will entertain you, or I'm here to talk about the thing that I hope will entertain you, and I hope that I'm entertaining while I talk about the thing that I hope will entertain you. First off, you have a new album uh, that just came out on uh, February 22nd, Fantaphobia. Uh, it's available through Needle Juice Records. So when I was listening to this album against your back catalog, it definitely feels like it's a bit of a progression from what's come before. Do you feel like you've matured as a musician? Absolutely. If you do anything for 22 years, you're going to, one, find your voice at it, more than likely, and two, refine what you do. And uh, I think the, the, the big strength of Thanatophobia is I specifically looked at the uh, what instruments I would have owned if it were just my job to write an album December 99, you know, mm -hmm. and produce it within six months um, after the first Mark with a C show. What would I have had at my disposal? What were the chord progressions like? And it was like a Casio keyboard that could make drum machines, an acoustic guitar, some random guitar effects. And could I have made this record then? No. I use the parts that make me specific, make me me, make me unique. And I've learned how to refine those to the point where I think I've gotten really good at being Mark with a C. But as a musician, I don't know. Because the word musicianship often is like sportsmanship, like playing well with others. And I've been told I don't always do that well. So uh, I might have some work to do on that. But as a solo act, nobody's really tapping on my shoulder saying I'm playing a bad note. <laughs> <laughs> this new album uh marks the beginning of a phase two of your music career uh what changes can your fans expect from the new era oh gosh this is myriad my friend phase one was a full-on persona and to explain a persona and why i would need it the best way i can do this is to tell you about the, the the two songs that were most likely to come back to back towards the end of a Mark with a C concert um, especially in say the last post 2007 uh, you'd have the song Life So Hard which was this kind of jokey tune about kids whining on MySpace mm -hmm. and I was one of them but then uh, it would have the song Happy to Be Alive which you might snicker at a, a line or two but it's, it's sincere and it's true and I have to bind that together somehow and they don't sound all that different but one makes people laugh and one makes people clap in the beat to the song how do i bind that together i had to find the persona that put every weird topic i was attracted to writing about uh, you know together and years of being a pop music geek i was just used to okay every song has to be heteronormative and as I started finding weird topics like bug chasing, I'm going, this has never been written about. And if so, I haven't heard about it. Great. I can plead ignorance. And, but then I would have to have a persona that could drown out the weirdness. 
so people would listen and not take that weird. Going forward, I don't have to do any of that. I can just be me. It's great. I've just decided to own that what I do is what I do. I just don't need to fake a persona to sell it to people. But I did have to sell it to people. At the time, especially in 1999, obviously, internet was not what it was, uh, or not what it is now. If you wanted people to know you existed and could deliver, you had to play shows. You had to go slum it out in the bars. Now I don't. And I'm going to take advantage of that and make better material because I didn't even hang out in bars before I was Mark with a C. That was never my jam. I'm just not like him. So do you feel that you've grown out of the character? Yeah, I, I felt that. But I'll tell you the day it really dawned on me was mixing the live album, the real live sound of Mark with a C. And th- there's a couple stories in it that are told which are are pretty much true though mark would see exaggerates on stage that's what you do you make an idea bigger and then you have to make it twice as big so that the person in the back gets it or is at least looking at you and i was hearing stories that i knew to be true but i could hear the lies in them the exaggerations and i went i don't like this this isn't fun but also there's a concept within that phase one I had to come up with something so that I didn't rage quit when things got hard and they got really hard for the first six years. And after I came up with that uh, concept, a riddle, I knew where I was going. I knew how I could finish. I could do it at any time I needed. But importantly, I had to hit every mile marker, every milestone. I hit so many more than I meant to that it was just an embarrassment of riches towards the end for a, for a DIY musician. Um, I don't know how, how better to tell you that it just feels great to know that I don't have to do the parts that, I'm, that I don't like. I like to make music. I don't have to do the other crap anymore. And especially with the help of Needlejuice, I have to do less of it. Did you usually leave the character behind once you left the stage? Tried to. Yeah. Um, uh, if I may ask, have have you ever um, acted? Have you done yes. any acting? Yes. Okay. Um, depending on how how deep you got into your uh, your role, uh, when you walked off stage, did you shake it off within three minutes? Usually, yeah. I mean, I was usually char- playing characters that were quite a bit different than I was, though. So. Gotcha. So for me. Uh, often people expect me to be who they saw on stage at the merch stand too. Right. So I didn't code switch very quickly. And because I work so much when I work, it's just constant back to back. Go, go, go. This is the time you have on earth. Make something with it, Mark. Uh, Because of that, I started running out of time to turn it off. There wasn't always enough hours in the day to go, okay, what does Mark Sidorius need? And, it was mixing that live album down where I went, no, really, I'm, this is Mark Sardorius' time, and I'm busy brainwashing myself the more I listen to this to believe this exaggerated truth is my truth. I went, no, this, we got to dial this down. I'm just not comfortable in it. Plus, um, as the world started to, well, at least a portion of it, got 
far more comfortable with LGBTQ plus situations, and I'd always been a champion from, I and I do mean day one, while yeah. not pointing at my own sexuality or my own fluidity, this was because it never kept me from anything. I just look like the average pasty white guy with an acoustic guitar. So everyone just books me assuming I'm Dave Matthews. I had the easiest time. Nobody kept me down. Nobody held me back. The man was not messing with me. So right. then it became my job to take advantage of that. Keep building up that persona and let everyone through the door that was gate kept out when I didn't get booked. And that's, I think, probably the thing i'm proudest of that i got to do the most awesome um so conceptually there's a lot more to this album than it's really first obvious first off can you tell me what went into the cover artwork only to an extent that's something you'll have to ask Catherine blackard um but i can tell you that there was a concept before uh any of those visuals existed in anyone's mind concerning this record and that concept was i told cat that i was going to make a record and in the condition i was in at that moment that was pretty hard to believe right um still not uh even 50 percent back to where i once was physically but it was a pretty heavy thing to and, and we don't bet we don't gamble it's nothing like that but i was like hey this is my idea if I do this record, um, I'm not going to let you hear anything about it. But when I deliver it to you, will you please make a visual rep uh, a visual representation of what this says to you? And that's what Cat did. And Cat created what I think is likely to be a groundbreaking cover because it was a moment where this almost was not the artwork. Really. Um Importantly, if you have a color-changing LED bulb, you can get basically four covers in one. You know, like, pick your poison that day. That's your cover. And um, maybe that existed somewhere else, but initially I remember Kat specifically believing we needed a very specific type of paper and that it, it just may not be doable. So right. on the day that the artwork was delivered, you could have knocked me over with a feather when Cat made it happen within budget. And I think it's pretty groundbreaking, but it there has never been a piece of visual art that has ever represented anything I've made better than that. Well, I will say this, Cat, if you are listening, you knocked it over the ballpark. I I'm pretty sure she'll listen when I say, Hey, there's nice words about you. <laughs> <laughs> so what can uh your listeners expect to hear how does this album differ musically from your previous work less guitar far more electronic instruments percussion rhythms keyboards um the, the bass guitar has been getting more and more prominent in my records since uh exactly where i am which came out around 2015 i think okay um it's sort of like you be if, if you begin with the album bubblegum romance you're like yeah, you got everything here. There's songs and there's a cover and you got everything except low end happening where you do know there's a whole other side of the frequency spectrum, right, Mark? And then it's like I slowly discover that if you're listening <laughs> chronologically. Yeah. And I think this record's the bassiest of all of them. Uh, also, I wouldn't anticipate that you're going to get, uh, you know, songs like Dick Puncher or 
you love my little squiddy or your, you know something that's a punchline but then again there's lines that you'll find silly and i don't care if you laugh it's all the emotions on the spectrum that any human can experience that i'm interested in not just one i love the minutia and the space between what we identify as the concrete emotion and if I could put it better than that, then I wouldn't be using music to create an expression of the inexpressible. <laughs> so there's also an enhanced option that's going to be available uh, with uh, physical copies of the Phobophobia. What can you tell me about that idea? Phobophobia was a... Um, let me see how to shorten this up. I had considered basically making two completely different mixes of the album. Um... But within a stereo way, I couldn't figure out how to do what I wanted to do, which was um, imagine that the right side, uh, the right speaker is you. In between, there's an object. On the left side is the other side of the mirror. In the middle is the mirror. I couldn't figure out how to get that mirror in between without just having a big gap of silence. Plus, vinyl doesn't work that way. You have to... Um, you have to mono the low tones too, at least a, a certain extent. And um, instead I was thinking, well, maybe I can throw it behind myself, but I don't want a quad album. So eventually I, I hit on, no, to do this, I'm going to literally have to put an object between the listener and the album. That's where it came from. It's something that you can sync up and sink deeper into the world. Um... Sort of like things are not always as they appear in the tunes. If you can really listen to what else was going on, what other ideas were there, vocal parts not using. There were choruses you don't hear on Thanatophobia that are on Phobophobia. For example, the song Half of Everything. The, the hook is only on Phobophobia. This does not mean that there's a right or wrong way to do this. This means this is any way that you want to do it. And so you won't get bored with it. Unless you just don't like the music. Right. And I admit, I've never heard of this concept being used on any other album that I can think of. So There is a place. Uh, famously, the Flaming Lips did one called Zyarika, and it was a four-CD set. And um, exactly, exactly as it sounds from there, uh, the music was spread out over four discs. It gave you tones so you could sync them up. And even CDs would go out of sync with each other, and that would create the coolest delay effects right. or just uh, the difference of the the rate that sound travels. And that's what I was counting on for phobophobia and thanatophobia. I really didn't want people to go into a DAW or you know something like Reaper, Audition, line those things up. The natural drift is what I wanted to do. I wanted to kind of... I, I wouldn't say Zyarika was the inspiration at all, but I did think of it as a touchstone constantly. And in the early 2000s, there were Zyarika parties. People would get together and make an event. Like, okay, we have four boomboxes. We can play the whole thing. And right. disc one, by many, was just assumed, well, that's the album. And they didn't. they figured everything else was the gravy. And that that's kind of how I treated... Thanatophobia is your full meal. For those who fight further, you want a different world? 
here you go. So it's kind of the salt and pepper and a little bit of extra spice to... Uh... Yeah, but phobophobia, uh, I know that this just is going to sound like a dare, unfortunately, but <laughs> it, it's really just not meant for you to play on its own. But yeah. you do you. I mean, if you enjoy it, who am I to... Com- who am I to complain or criticize? As long as you're having a good time. Getting back to uh, Mark with the C, uh, has shedding the persona uh, opened up new avenues for you musically? Yes. Every album, no matter what it was, no matter how tossed off, and there were a couple, you know, like, okay, I want to do a free release for the holidays, stuff like that. Um, just here, just something you can download. Um, what do I have laying around that's not being used? There were some of those things, but every major release i thought about the persona because 
I had to make it work on stage. I had to make the song work on stage. I had to make the persona believe it. It had to be something the persona would believe in a very obvious way. Right. And let me give you an, a very specific situation where I knew that this persona had to be refined. 2003, I introduce, and it's not out on any record at that time, I introduce a song into my set list. It's called Retro Lo-Fi. And again, 2003. And it's three and a half minutes about how much I love vinyl records. Everybody looked at me like I had five heads, like I was just <laughs> trying to be difficult. It wasn't even a gleam in a hipster's eye that there would be a vinyl resurgence. Right. What I had to be able to do as that persona was make people believe that. Now, right now, as a calm person, you're, there's no reason for an audience to listen to me in a room where people are drinking, you know? Yeah. There's no point to that. So I got to make that point really loudly. So they go, wait, why would you make that point so loudly? And then maybe hear the rest of it. Um, <laughs> and then possibly give them a chance because vinyl records can be cool. This doesn't yeah. mean they're the only way, but they can be cool. Um, I don't have to think about that now. I can just write and I can release what I want and like and wish that people heard. That opens up every avenue I never had for 22 years. So do you feel that Mark was kind of starting to choke you off as a musician? As far as what I would release to the public under the name Mark with a C, yes, it was strangling me and it had been for um, years, years. This doesn't so... mean I looked down on anything in those last eight years or whatever. Uh, no, I think personally, I think those are the best records I did in phase one overall um, in a cluster. I don't look down on any of it, but the persona got in the way of me pushing those records as hard as I wanted to in shows. That, right. That'd be a better way to put it. So let's uh, talk about the title of the album, uh, Phantophobia, The Fear of Death. It's a pretty heady subject. Um, why did you choose that title as the album? I didn't. I'm so glad you asked. I actually <laughs> did not. Um, I gave Cat, Cat Blackard, three choices for the title. And Thanatophobia was one, but it was the one I thought that she was least likely to choose. I was wrong. Uh, I know that one title was You're Gonna Have to Kill Me. I there was a third there was a third title that I just don't remember off the top of my head. And but it was it was close. It was something like that. It was something from that song, I believe. And Cat went, no, thanatophobia is this whole thing. Um, so if you've uh, never heard of me, don't know anything about me, dear listener, I um, was diagnosed with cancer. Unfortunately, the actual type was misdiagnosed. Um, that wasn't caught until the first surgical procedure to try to remove some of it. And they went, oh, no. And that made the cancer go, oh, no. And it reacted very poorly. And that that's when my health crashed not at the actual diagnosis the procedure that makes it better is where my health crashed and i'm still kind of clawing my way back up to health to get well enough to try that again and we still don't know completely what i'm dealing with and that really sucks in a pandemic because let me tell you they don't even take cancer very seriously in a hospital's waiting room now they, yeah. they really don't um so it was definitely hanging over my head because having cancer in a pandemic and noticing that people aren't that interested 
Um, and I'm not talking about friends or fans. I mean, when a doctor goes, so what? Everybody's got problems. When they hear cancer, you know you're in for it. So I've never feared mortality. I feared how long this was going to be drug out until I didn't have to feel it anymore. And I still do. Yeah. But within the record, I ultimately do confront every major anxiety that I'm ready to tell the public about. Right there, you're hearing me work it out in the lyrics. All of them. Every anxiety. Death anxiety. My biggest death anxiety, truly, is being buried alive. And oh. that's, a, that's what a lot of the pandemic feels like to me. But yeah, the, to an extent, I feel like I'm continuing to confront it by being alive right now in 2022 while I really couldn't go anywhere. And let's say there was no pandemic and I was still ill, I'd still be walking around in a mask because I didn't, I wouldn't want to catch a cold and make it worse. You yep. don't want to wake up every day and go, which symptom of which illness that'll kill me could this be? And I'm not a hypochondriac. Uh, the exact opposite of that, in fact, you, you used to have to twist my arm to make me go to the doctor. Yeah. And now I'd rather just camp out in front of their office if it'll help. If it'll help them <laughs> speed it up, I'm into it. That is where fanatophobia, I, I believe when Kat chose it, I went, yep, that can work. That's perfect. I think that's why I didn't uh, argue it at all. But also it was always up to Kat. That was, yeah. that was part of the agreement. You're going to choose how people see it, how people look at it. So it's a collaboration but my part was finished. Then Kat had to make something to complement it. Frankly, Kat had the harder job, and I think Kat did the better job, but that's up to everybody else to decide. Yeah, I noticed in the uh, cover, one of the images that appears, I believe it's under the red light, is what appears to be a train barreling down on the character at the front of the album. And I really thought that, that image really struck me because, you know, that is what the last three years have felt like. Yeah, I, I think we've all had our own version of that really since 2016. And listen, I'm, I'm not about to get political on your show. I'm going to be as vague as I possibly can here. Um, if an entire country has an abusive father and half of them don't know that because they're siding with the abusive father because that's how victimhood works... Um, yeah, you're going to be up against it six years later Yeah, when you still haven't gone to therapy, still haven't reckoned with it. So I'm not saying my problems are special. I'm saying I got my problems while all these other problems are happening. So everybody is equally screwed. Mine just comes with illness more often than the average person. How did you become involved with Needle Juice Records? Many years ago, Jace McLean and Odd Austin, who I'd met through Nerd Music, uh, playing at Nerdapalooza, things of this nature, they reached out to me because they were doing a compilation that was a tribute to Weird Al. And I was yeah. that Weird Al fan. The one who was like, I love his originals. And this doesn't mean I ever had a problem with the parodies. Please don't get me wrong. Yeah. But the originals, for me, that was where I went, okay, you are a genius. There is nothing that compares with this. And um, so when I got asked, I was like, you want me to just cover a parody? And they're like, no, no, we're focusing on the originals. I'm like, yes, yes. Um, I was their first record that they were 
putting out on any kind of bigger scale than maybe like a CDR to to sell at a show or something. It's called 26 and a half, and I've been told that in a lot of ways that itself was the beginning of Needle Juice Records. So what's so cool about that, if that's true and if that's really how they see it, that first compilation, 26 and a half, has nuclear bubble wrap and Austin's music, and it has me doing a cover of Good Enough for Now, and there we are, still on the same label. Like, it, it's sort of like these are the ones who stayed standing in this yeah. uh, quirky, not quite comedy, but not quite intellectual zone <laughs> of nerd yeah. music. Uh, though I would argue that recent nuclear bubble rap has become very intellectual and uh that was a description i might have used 10 years ago right now it's boy that new album of theirs problematic is uh incisive but how i got involved with them was just unfortunately in this case it really was a little bit of who you know right but then jace and austin clearly were listening to my records they liked them i approached them about hey do you want to do something with the obscurity trilogy we did something. I was a little surprised when they approached me about doing shock treatment interpretations, and there's a whole rabbit hole to go down for that one. Um, but they knew something I didn't, which was how much that thing was selling for on the used market. I I just couldn't believe <laughs> my eyes when I saw it. I'm like, yeah, we, we clearly need to put this back out. But I don't really think about the album. It's everybody else that birthed this this right. was not what i intended to be in the eyes of the world so when i saw how effective needle juice was at that you know marketing a record that i didn't really think about it's from the heart but in a very different way it was never about commerce and it's so out of tune i'm like why would you sell this why would anybody buy it <laughs> um their listener base heard something real in it they heard something that that they agree with. And Needle Juice was already my favorite label, so I was just paying attention because they made such cool records. Then I started noticing that the fan base was young, LGBTQ+. I haven't seen a record label have this kind of fandom in like two decades. But importantly, it is a safe space for kids in the LGBTQ community. There has never been a record label like that that I've yeah. known of in my lifetime that's even gotten to this level. You, Wild Horses, could not have stopped me from working with Needle Juice once <laughs> I found that. Let's talk about your recording style. Uh, where do you usually record? Do you record at home or do you often go to a studio? Right here in this chair. This microphone is the uh, vocal mic for Thanatophobia. Um, uh, the folks listening at home can't see that, but it's a, um, it's the King Bee microphone, and it looks like that. It basically looks like the Cheerios Bee, and it's a wonderful condenser mic. Um, right behind me is a bank of guitar effects. Right in front of me is one keyboard. Right over there is another keyboard, um, and right behind me, slightly to the right, is a rack of guitars. I don't have to bend more than six inches to make a sound in my own office. It's a matter of if I'm well enough that day to concentrate, if that's where I need to put my energy. Unfortunately, with 
my health being erratic, truly writing an email, there are days where just writing a two sentence email is what I'm gonna do. And that's gonna take two hours to get that energy and then I'm gonna fall asleep. And that's weird because I've been a lifelong insomniac and if anybody knows anything true about me, that's the one that I genuinely yeah. am a lifelong insomniac. So, um, right here, and that's the best thing ever. And I, I only changed that intentionally one time with Mark with a C, and that was going to Canada to let Jordan Zadarozny produce the album Obscurity. He was the producer of my dreams. It was what I wanted to do since I was 16 or 17 and heard the second Blinker the Star album. It happened in the middle of track seven, just like I said in the Obscurity show. And to this moment, I believe Jordan Zadarozny is the only person who could say, Mark, what you've done is fine, but let me have a crack at it. I, I would drop, well, other than the fact that Thanatophobia just came out, I would have stopped the day before release and gone, Needle Juice, we need to hold up. Jordan wants to take a crack at this. And they know what Jordan's all about, too. Right. So that's what it would take. Um, literally the producer of my dreams, again, to make me do anything different. Because what am I really trading for studio time? I'm trading excitement. When I've got an idea and I'm inspired to work and I feel well enough to do it, and I'm sitting right here surrounded by all those tools, I'm limited because I can't move a lot. It's sort of like how They Might Be Giants were super limited with Dial-A-Song because short staccato bursts would trick the answering machine into thinking it was the beep and it would cut off the songs. So they had to learn to literally compose differently. And I'm sometimes learning to compose differently because I don't have enough room to strum. So I have to make a louder noise softer. Um, I get to preserve the excitement of capturing the moment. If I go to a studio, other than Jordan, take after take after take to suck the excitement out of it, then a Pro Tools rig to just gerrymander that rhythm into sounding like something the robot played, but you pretend it's a human, but we all know better. No. Yeah. No. It's, Pete Townsend wasn't talking about music when he said this, but the... Be kind, be real, or get out of my face is exactly how I feel about my own manner of creation. I'm going to make this real, or I don't want anything to do with it. Or at least hopeful. You know, if, it, if it's got to be obvious and overworked, at least make it make someone feel good. But past that, no, I, I don't see any reason not to record from home. Now, technically, um, do you record with a click track? Sometimes. Uh, when I would do it early and when i say early the the first full mark with the sea albums i produced begin in 2005 with um this world is scary as f-bomb mm -hmm. um, just in case <laughs> just in case you never know from there until i'm gonna have to guess around pop 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 uh, a record from 2010 no click tracks i was trying to learn to play drums and and obviously, especially when you listen to the, the 2005 record, like, oh, yeah, that guy clearly cannot play. Um, and uh, it's not that playing to a click track was cheating or something. I just felt it wasn't honest because I couldn't keep up with it. So what's the point? I either make the rhythm and then 
I can play to that exact rhythm, knowing precisely when it's going to wobble, and I can sound like a band making, making eye contact. And that was way more exciting to me, especially when I found out that a band that I loved, Guided by Voices, that's exactly what they did. Like, right. wait, this is a tradition. I'm in the lo-fi outsider music tradition. And gosh, once I knew that, um, I still almost feel like I was sort of flicking off being DIY by going to Canada and letting Jordan produce the record. And I say letting as if he was begging. No, I begged. Yeah. Um, but um, having Jordan produce that almost felt like I flicked off my own independence. And I still fight with that to this day, while it's also so cool that I'm listening to <laughs> that record and Jordan Zadarozny's playing drums on it or singing the backgrounds on Terribly Popular with me. The, oh, gosh. It's real easy to get off my high horse when I just press play and remember what a genius he is. And yeah. uh, often, when I hear somebody else's record and go, oh, so you mean if I would have left the house and trusted someone else, I could have had that? Yeah, that even came up during Nuclear Bubble Wrap's Problematic. I don't know if you're aware of this, but they, they did a mix of it and uh, decided to can it and then brought in a producer to completely remix this very, very, very dense album. It is night and day different. But they'd been independent their whole life, so it just didn't even pop into their head, I think. I mean, I can't speak for Jace and Nuclear Bubble Rap, but I think it didn't pop into their heads until an audience had to contend with it and went, no, we can't hear the vocals, and why is that keyboard not doing what I think a keyboard should do? Right. Jace has expressed to me how thrilled uh, they are with having gone to a producer to remix the album. So, there's a... I wouldn't say it's impossible that I will record from home and not send the stems to a producer. And I am telling you far too much, far too in advance. <laughs> gotcha. Say that everybody gets the blues But when they do, they jump 
So let's get into the instruments that you play. What instruments do you all play? Hmm. Uh, guitar, you know, just general six string guitar, bass, keyboard, but I really got to concentrate on it. And even then that doesn't mean I'm good. It means I got a really, I'm a real henpecker with like, okay, I can do that. And I can do the general three finger chords that you learn first day of, right. you know, piano lessons or whatever. Give me a scale, I'm lost. Uh, drums, I finally got pretty okay at, but my health doesn't really allow me to put that much energy into playing them. So I don't, and also I don't enjoy playing drums. So I really like drum machines though. Yeah. Now that's the perfect excuse to use those. And a lot of what you, um, what you hear on Thanatophobia was not necessarily overdubbed. Those were a lot of things triggered live. Um, I'm going to show you something that the listeners will not be able to see. Okay. Um, this right here um, that you can barely make out. Okay. This is me, uh, what I trigger nearly everything at my feet with. So it's a pedal board. Well, yes, but it's also a muting pedal board, one that stops and starts the recording. So I can stand right in front of the curtain exactly like I perform in virtual shows mm -hmm. and just know how to play the song. I can compose it in the moment and come back to it, take away the part I didn't mean to trigger. It's taken me years to come up with this setup because I would walk away from songs too much, uh, never come back to them. And I'm so prolific with just wanting to create wanting to get something out, trying to communicate, expressing the inexpressible. I felt like it was silly to have all these half-finished things. Let's make the tools to finish it without having to stop, listen back to it. Um, no, let's throw everything at it all at once and then start peeling back what I didn't need. And there's a, there's a lot more to that. I think in our everyday lives that that we could all stand to do and one day when i get the motivation to clean up my bedroom um yep 44 still need motivation to clean my bedroom uh -huh. um maybe i'll find that needle in the haystack there too and uh take my own advice <laughs> but um you can actually see the the beginnings of this in my uh, in the film about the stage show that i did the obscurity show um the camera is importantly not focused on it, but there's a lot of hidden things at my feet because I'm triggering everything, the sound system, um, all of it. It's an entire play. The only thing that is being done by another human being is Cat Blackard holding a camera. That's it. <laughs> that is the one thing taking place that I'm not doing. Turning on a light, turning off a light, making a shadow appear. I'm doing all of it triggered by my feet. So why am I just not doing this for sound? Yeah. And here we are. And a lot of thanatophobia is made that way. Well, it's a fairly impressive setup, I gotta admit. Well, thank you. Uh, nobody has asked me that one, though, so I, I never had the chance to say, well, in a lot of ways, I cheated. But... Mm -hmm. um, I didn't because that sound didn't exist before I did it. It's a tree falling in the forest moment. And if somebody else had the idea better than me, they could have made the record. Um, 
you can still cover it, really. Um, <laughs> everybody, cover Thanatophobia, please. I want to hear it, but not by me. <laughs> Who are some of the musicians that have inspired you? How long do you have, Corey? I will tell you, I, I will talk about music geek stuff till the cows come home, then I'll make the cows listen to the records that I just told <laughs> you about. Uh, for me, gosh, it's endless. Um, the big ones, The Who, and I mean every member of The Who equally. Right. Um, Mike Nesmith, um, not just in The Monkees, but especially outside of The Monkees, the way that he was able to parlay his ideas into um, something that doesn't exist right now. You and I are using Zoom to speak. Mm -hmm. And with Zoom, you can throw on that animated background. And Mike Nesmith, uh, well, he's passed away now. Mike Nesmith holds that patent. Really? He created it. Um, this was for something called Video Ranch 3D that he started working on in the 80s. He just was like, what if I can make a life you could hang out with in the computer? And people took to it. And then... Uh, Someone tried to steal it for Quantum Link called Habitat. Okay. And yeah, uh, those are like top, top, top of the heap for me. Vocally, the person who makes me want to sing, even though I don't have a typical voice, Kirsty McCall. That voice sends shivers. Um, everything about Zappa and the fearlessness that Zappa went at any art with highly inspiring especially because i know i'll never get to his level of quality even on his worst produced things i never will that secret was in his ears his fingers his heart uh then of course i was you know like any anybody as i grew up i found that i kept coming back to the music that motivated me and comforted me between the ages of around five to say about 17, 16. Right. Um, I don't know how nostalgia works for everybody else. I've never been anybody else. <laughs> but for me, I, I found that I could trace back and go, yep, that's where that sound comes from. That's where that sound comes from. So weirdly, um, Simon LeBon of Duran Duran, and I love Duran Duran. Yes. Um, when, when they make great records... They are great when they are not great records. They are the opposite of that. Um, but that's always in the ear of the beholder, of course, and I'm not going to specify which is which. Yeah. That's silly. But the way that Simon Le Bon stacked his vocals for a very specific harmony, as you hear in Hungry Like the Wolf, that's where I guess I got the idea that you could do it, that you didn't have to have a harmonizing partner. And as a result, I don't have his range, but a lot of my tone when I sing for harmonies sounds like Simon Le Bon, but my vibrato, nothing but Davy Jones. <laughs> it, it totally is. And the older I get, yeah. it's going to be that Ethel Merman vibrato, just like mm -hmm. he got. Uh, uh, as far as genreless, because I never, I never wanted to be it must be rock and roll or it must be yeah. country or um you can chalk that up to the band war uh now they're best known for low rider and why can't we be yes. friends 
um, Cisco Kid to an extent, and of course, slipping into darkness after um, Suicide Squad. But um, there is, actually is no but. Um, those songs are wonderful too. Play any one of their records, drop the needle at any point, you will not believe it's the same band. But it doesn't matter which song you pick. Whatever you just heard by them will not sound like the next. And I went, you can just do that? You can just go, yeah, all right, so it was kind of reggae, and now we uh, want to do a country ballad about Mazatlan. And you can. <laughs> and I didn't... Those were the records that I heard earliest where it wasn't, look at me, I'm changing styles. Mm -hmm. We make a lot about Bowie changing styles every record. Ward did it between songs with like 18 people in the band and they didn't even have a meeting between. They just, one would start playing and the other went, cool, that's what we're doing now. And they'd follow that groove <laughs> and they burnt the house down the times that I saw them live. And uh, of course, Bowie himself. Bowie showed me um, everything about yeah. a persona. Everything about... Um, my favorite thing that I've learned from David Bowie, <laughs> I had to stop there and rephrase, is misdirection. Because he will give you every piece of information possible for a song. And he will leave out one thing that will bind it all together. And it makes him seem so weird, so obtuse. Mm -hmm. Um, so, Corey, uh, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to sound condescending or tell you information you already know. Um, are you into Bowie at all? Um, recent stuff. I've only recently started to really pay attention to David Bowie. I mean, I've always been familiar with David Bowie over the years, um, but it's only in the last, say, five, even less years that I've started going, you know, I really need to start li listening to his back album. So gotcha. I am not as familiar as okay. most fans are. Okay, so you, you have a kind of a good overview of the big hits and you yeah. dig it and that that's yeah. about where you're at right now. Yeah. I mean, but, you okay. know, the only I album of his sure. that I own is uh, Diamond Dogs. I oh, it's such a dark record. It is. Um would you do you know the trivia about how it had to become Diamond Dogs? No, I don't. If you put that album in a slightly different order, it's actually nineteen eighty four, the musical. Okay. And Orwell's estate wouldn't come off the rights. So they'd even built a stage show for it that was called Hunger City, and they had to, like, go screw it up and make it look like an alleyway, and it's it's just a beautiful part of his history of, well, we didn't ask permission, now we can't ask forgiveness, and we just spent a lot of money. Mm -hmm. What do we do now? And he, like, crapped out the song Rebel Rebel, this two-chord wonder. Just like, okay, there we go. And, um, I don't know, airbrush me like a dog. And, I mean, how's that for lightning in a bottle? And it's all because he got turned down. But, um, the reason that I asked is because I didn't want to, you know, sound condescending or tell you something that you might already know. Um, we're recording this late February of 2022, and recently, it would stand to reason, Valentine's Day. Yes. He has a track called Valentine's Day on the next to last record that he made in his lifetime. The album's called The Next Day. Valentine's Day is track five. If you look at 
just the title, you're going to think David Bowie, Valentine's Day. Okay, probably like a, I don't know, love song? A ballad? Then you read the lyrics, if you read the lyrics, and go, this is a little left of that. This is a thing that's taken place on Valentine's Day. Then you watch the video, assuming you watch the video, while you know the lyrics, and you go, no, I wasn't even close, and why is Bowie doing that? And he's not even dressed up. Wait, why isn't Bowie eye-catching? And everything happening in the video obscures the fact that he never shows you the gun. Right. He's always inferring about a Valentine's Day shooting. Yes. But he will not just show you the gun. And that misdirection... Uh, I can't pretend that something that came out in, like, 2013 was big at the beginning of Mark with a C for me. Mm -hmm. Obviously, time doesn't work that way. <laughs> I can say that I was a huge Bowie fan before that and saw that a million times in everything he did, but Valentine's Day was the first video where I went, now I can point it out to people. There it is. There's the misdirection. There were so many people in 72 who thought... The album was named David Bowie, and the guy singing was Ziggy Stardust. Do you know mm -hmm. how many people still think Ziggy Stardust is an alien? They still won't listen. <laughs> he, he's telling you. Ziggy says there's a star man waiting in the sky. Yeah. Bowie doesn't care. He won't correct you. No. That's great. That lets you think, and that is what I got from Bowie. That almost is more important than the tones. That's more important than wanting to play guitar. Knowing what to leave out. Priceless. Let's get to vinyl collecting. Uh, what is it about the media format of vinyl that really attracts you? Because that's obviously something that you're known for. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'd say if locally, if people only knew my face for one thing, it might be might be vinyl. Um, I liked it when I was little. I taught myself to read with those, uh, you know, the little 45s that would come in a picture book, you know, say about Raiders of the Lost Ark or Star Wars or something. And a lot of kids did. That This isn't me going like, oh, I'm the smartest. No, I found out that a lot of kids did the same thing. Yeah. So I always saw records, I think from a very young age, as the answer. Uh, but then... When you get to the 90s, when people aren't thinking about vinyl, when you literally can't give it away, people mm -hmm. are just throwing out sealed Ramones albums into the street, which now they're all kicking themselves, going, oh, that's like $6,000 I threw away. And, and that's just one. That's one LP. Um, at that time, it was the only one I could afford. Yeah. If I went into a thrift store with five bucks, I could walk out, because these were, you know, 10 cents, 25 cents. I would walk out with an armload of classic, classic records like Carol King's Tapestry. I got the Mobile Fidelity Sound Lab version of uh, Dark Side of the Moon that now just goes for stupid money. I paid one dollar. Yeah. One dollar. <laughs> with five dollars... I could give away records that I didn't like, but nobody would take them, of course. Yeah. Um, there was the, the sky was the limit. I, I've always been a music geek, but vinyl helped me study. 
that period of time helped me study it. But if you really get down to it, there's a little bit extra to it, and that is we can get into any argument we'd like about things being lossless or having a digital step. Things had digital steps long before we ever noticed. Um, I'm sure I'm preaching to the choir about that. Uh, technology has uh, has not... Well, the history of tech has not changed. It's still what it is. Uh, we have not come up with alternative facts about how we got there yet. So, vinyl, you can literally capture as much as any format, any format, any physical format that you can touch, as lossless as possible. So we're talking, you know, the 192-bit Studio Masters, uh, a Pink Floyd record. Yeah. If you could somehow acquire that and put that directly on vinyl, I don't know exactly how many bits uh, conceivably that translates to, but vinyl is going to hold more of it than anything. It's going to contain and capture more of it than anything. This isn't to say that CDs are bad. The way that mastering became the loudness wars on CDs, not so good, because mm -hmm. that just ruined a lot of music. But it doesn't mean that I think the objects are bad. I think they were unfinished. There's a great book about that called Perfecting Sound Forever. I don't have hmm. a problem with tapes. Um, in fact, recently, I, I got some sent to me, and I went, no, I, I dig these. And it was actually one of my own, but that's a topic for a, <laughs> another time. I went, wait, do, can other tapes sound this good? And I went on a bit of an eBay buying jag, and it's like, <laughs> no, they don't. But um, some are cool. And uh, tape can hold, or it has the same possibility that vinyl does, but nobody takes cassette mastering seriously at all, and they never did. Yeah. Um, vinyl has the opportunity to present more information that the artist intended you to get than anything else. And if we come up with something better, and I can afford it, because I'm still going to want to collect it. I like the physical manifestation of the item. I don't care if other people don't. I don't care if someone else goes, I don't have room for that. It, well, make room for it if you like it. If you love it, What? who cares? These objects exist. They were going to exist anyways. Why not just walk away from it rather than making fun of it or going, oh, is that stuff still around? And let me tell you, there are so many people who have not gotten the message about the vinyl resurgence. I don't know if there's anything else I can add to that other than, if we're being frank, vinyl's just the sexiest format and really not that different from the first wax cylinder. They, they just refined it and every, everybody like me is going, why mess up a good thing? <laughs> just, what was wrong with this? You put on a jazz record on CD, nobody cares. You're on a date, you throw in a jazz cassette, they're gonna be like, what? You start streaming it, they might fall asleep. You drop the needle on, I don't know, let's pick something jazzy, like uh, Steely Dan's Gaucho. You drop the needle on that in here, Babylon Sisters, on a date. It has a whole vibe, and I can't put it into words, 
you might be able to, but I've never heard anybody able to explain that, that connection, the drop in the needle, the surface noise. And I hear people complain about surface noise, and John Peel said it best with, motherfucker, life has surface noise. <laughs> and like, yeah, Can't things argue that. pop up all the time to drown out our sound. So that's, a, that's how I got into it. It was the cheapest one, and yeah. then it's just where my heart stayed. But I have no issue with you enjoying anything any way you'd like, no matter who you are, as long as nobody gets hurt. Before I lay down and die 
let's go into your music career. Um, obviously, you're in phase two. Is mm-hmm. there plans for phase three, phase four? Not not plans, no. Okay. Um, I, I figure phase two just it's not the persona and. If you've uh, if you've watched any live videos of me as Mark with a C way back, hopefully you can assuredly see a massive divide between this individual here who's not, you know, swilling beer and yelling. And um, I I think there's a marked difference. No pun, I swear. Um, but I don't think that there's anything that could interest me more right now than just learning how to be myself on record and in performances, though those are only going to be happening virtually for the foreseeable future, but that was what was going to happen anyways, and I knew that for years. Frankly, I didn't even plan for virtual shows. I just wasn't going to do it anymore. I just didn't like the atmosphere of concerts, and that's up to every individual to make their own choice, but I don't know. I realized that for my adult life, I hadn't been myself when people saw me. There was always an element of pretending. And often that meant that people believed awful things were Mm. what I thought, uh, how I felt. They thought that that was my behavior. And you can't get around the fact that I did those actions. They were often caught on tape. Your behavior, if you are what you do, if you are what you have done, then that persona was becoming me. And when I started to realize that most is when I started running from it, started trying to find ways to turn off method acting because I'd never been trained. I just went at it. Right. Found out way too late. No, you can't always just flip that off like a light switch. Um, I guess if it gets boring, being me there's a possibility of a phase three but that would be like in a bowie sort of way right um like okay this year i'm the thin white duke you know that that's literally what it would have to be or assuming a character like ziggy stardust but i've done it not ziggy stardust i don't have the legs for it uh nobody can pull (laughs) off that red spiky hair like he can uh i'm not saying never but I got no interest in it now. I've got all these adult years that I haven't really explored, that I haven't used for entertainment, that I haven't used to mine for songs. Now it's weird that when you just pin me in a corner and go, Mark, be you. It's the one thing I didn't know how to do. If you, Right now, when the camera flipped on, Corey, I don't know if you realized you were the first person I've spoken to with the intent for it to be completely public as Mark Sardorius ever but even just in the hour leading up to doing our interview I had to psych myself up and go no don't do it when you see the camera come on don't don't act differently don't pretend that you feel better than you do don't pretend you have more energy than you do be you I had to remind myself just to be here with you so it really becomes second nature and I found in the monthly live streams that I do at uh, my Patreon that 
people were noticing uh, there were literal texts I was getting going, you're getting really good at being you. Uh, people who had met me and known me off stage more than a fan would, yeah. uh, more than a listener would, they were complimenting that I was the person they first met. And it's like, that's great. I got to practice in front of them. They could tell me if I was being me or if I'd slipped back into it. But there were times where everything would go wrong technologically and I'd immediately go back into the persona. Like, okay, if everything's going badly, then I go into, how did I get this job? But if, I, if everything goes wonderful, I go into arrogance. It's throwing bipolarity on its head and an exaggeration of bipolarity. But uh, even that feels ugly. And to have that be natural to slip into and know it's always possible, I guess I couldn't know that it isn't very good and doesn't yield great results on a personal level unless I've done it. But now I'd like to make sure that it doesn't yield any bad results going forward. And I don't, I believe that the persona only ever hurt me. And I believe that since 2008, the persona hurt Mark Sordorius. It didn't leave time for me to grow and blossom like an adult should. And a lot of things that I believe about uh, equality, consent. I didn't realize that I needed to be using using the fact that I had a PA and a microphone responsibly, or that I could be doing that. When I realized how many years I could have been throwing this in every time I had to play Nerdy Girls, or you know that that billionth performance of Life So Hard, or Chicken Pox and Star Wars guys, that that's even just stopping long enough to go. Acquiring enthusiastic consent is never optional. It's always mandatory. And then mm -hmm. I could have just continued with the show. Every show that I didn't do that, I remember it. I, I remember while playing it, like, when, when do you do it, Mark? When is that happening? And by 2015, it became a part of the show where I basically dropped the character and then immediately went back into it so I could say things like this. I could say things about bodily autonomy. This got to the point where, in the film The Obscurity Show, what, what most didn't realize that they were watching was my attempt of using the energy that I get, the adrenaline, the endorphins that I get from the Mark with a C persona at stage time to be me. So there's still exaggeration for the stage in some of those stories. That's a Mark Sordorius movie. And I mostly only focused on the songs that I believed in more than anything, or at least as many as I could cram in. But back to that initial point about stopping the shows to say things about consent and bodily autonomy. And I can't tell you how shocked I still am. And this video exists on 20 uh, or on uh, YouTube. I'm playing at the Plaza Theater in 2019, and I address the audience as ladies, gentlemen, and non-binaries, and the wave of applause that just does not die down for 20 seconds, just because I recognized that non-binary people exist, mm -hmm. continues to mow me down. And that's what I could have been doing all that time. It's time to, it's time to look at, well, Mark, you did everything wrong. And you 
got pretty far with it. I mean, for an independent type person. But now let's focus on what you did right and what you like. And it turns out that all the hopeful parts were the parts that I like best. I don't need the others. I hope that, I mean, it's pretty far from your question, but I hope it's somewhat in the same stadium that the sport is played in. You know what? I think we're going to wrap that up there. I really, really appreciate that from you. Thank you so much for having me here. Well, thank you very much, Mark. I really do appreciate it. If you're enjoying the podcast, consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash meet he geeks. That's right. We messed up on the domain. So that's patreon.com forward slash M-E-E-T-H-E-G-E-E-K-S. And help us keep bringing great content and great interviews with the artists you want to know about.